So do you talk with your hands? You know, that person, you know, you talk with your hands. Maybe, you know, some small gestures when you're directing someone, you know, to the local donut shop. That was actually accurate, by the way. Maybe, maybe you're more than just small gestures, you know. Maybe you're talking about your, uh, it's not donut shop. Maybe, maybe you're talking about the goal that your granddaughter scored, you know, at the soccer match. And, man, you, you're just like a ninja explaining that. I mean, you are all over the place letting everybody know what she did. Most of us talk with our hands in some way, shape, or form. We do it here and there and yonder, and it's okay. Dr. Elena Nicolatis is a researcher at the University of Alberta. One of her research areas of study is hand gestures, and she said that one of the reasons we talk with our hands is because we have vivid images in our minds. This is what she says. For example, you'll use more hand gestures when you're trying to remember the exact details of your seventh birthday rather than remembering what you did on a typical day during your childhood. Now, if you were telling me about your seventh birthday and you started using hand gestures, I would be seriously impressed. I don't remember what I was doing seven days ago. If you can remember vivid images of your seventh birthday, you need to sign up to be a contestant on Jeopardy because that means you would probably remember everything that you learned about American history and world history, and you could get those categories good. You'd probably even do all right on potpourri, too. You'd, you'd be fine. So if you can remember vivid images of seventh birthday, that's, that's impressive. Dr. Nicolatis goes on to say this. People who tend to have trouble finding the right words to get their message across are more likely to speak with their hands. So I guess that means when you see me using my hands a lot in the sermon, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, no clue. Don't know what I'm saying. I'm just waving my hands around. Regardless of how much you use your hands when you talk, the use of your hands at least reflects that you are thinking something. And not just your hand gestures, right? Anything that you say, anything that you do is a reflection of what you are thinking. So, how are you thinking? How is your thinking? John Wooden was the coach of the UCLA men's basketball team for a number of years. In a matter of 12 years, he won 10 national championships. It's unbelievable. This is what he said. When opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. Opportunity is coming to you this afternoon. Lord willing, opportunity is coming to you tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And as many days as have been ordained, for you on this earth. And those opportunities, the time to prepare for those opportunities is right now. Right now. And the best way to prepare for those opportunities is by how you think. We begin a new series today walking through Philippians chapter 4. Over the the weeks to come, we're going to pray that God would help us to be prepared for all the opportunities that are coming our way. No matter what your title is, parent, grandparent, husband, wife, father, mother, whatever it is that you're doing in life, there are opportunities coming your way. There are things coming, and we need to be prepared. And we're going to pray that God helps us to be prepared primarily and first in our minds, and not just with our minds, but no, we need to think with our hands. We need to think actively. So in this series, we'll be looking at thinking about this. We're going to be engaging with who God is 
who you are and what God has called you to do. Opportunity is coming. And the time to prepare is right now. So, let's get to it. Listen to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see. If you were here last Sunday, you heard our student minister, Kevin Miller, give you the ancient seminary secret of when you see a therefore, what is that therefore, therefore? So again, we have a therefore this morning. The Apostle Paul had just finished telling his friends about what it meant to be a citizen of heaven. And part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven is that no power of hell and no scheme of man and no failed test and no demotion at work and no disease and no hurricane and no active shooter can ever pluck you from God's hand. That's worth repeating. Part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven is that no power of hell and no scheme of man and no failed test and no demotion at work, no disease, no hurricane, no active shooter can ever pluck you from God's hand. It's impossible. That's what Paul had just got through writing to his friends. I shared these words a few weeks ago from Jeff Thomas, about our citizenship in heaven, he says this, death held Christ for a moment and then he rose. We too will be held for a moment and then our lowly bodies will be transformed. Every need will be met, every longing fulfilled, every goal is achieved, every sense is satisfied. We see him, we are with him. He holds us and hugs us and whispers, this is forever. Therefore, if if Jesus has done this, if, if Jesus has purchased our eternity, if he's guaranteed that every longing of our soul will be satisfied in him forever, then what? Well, Paul's going to tell us in just a second. He's going to tell us what that therefore is, is there for. And what is his lead-in to it? Listen again, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, He's not their enemy. He's not their prestigious pastor. He's not their power-hungry CEO. He's their friend. He's, He's their brother. He's their loyal companion in the Lord. And he longed to see them. You ever long to see somebody? Maybe a husband's been away on a business trip or a wife is traveling, visiting her parents or your son or your daughter went away on a mission trip and, and you're at the airport and, and you're in that area where the long haul is coming from all the gates and you're looking just person by person. You're, you're trying to find your loved one and, and you're a little bit anxious, you're a little bit excited and, and you keep looking and looking and looking and, and finally you spot them. And you're, you're relieved a little bit immediately. And, and you're happy. You, you have been longing to see them, and, and now you see them. Paul was, was longing to see these folks. He, he had a hunger to see them. And what's interesting was what was happening in his life while he was writing this. He was incarcerated for the cause of Christ. 
And so sure, I'm sure Paul would, was hoping that maybe he'd be free from his imprisonment, but, but his main longing was just fellowship. He wasn't just longing to be free. He was longing to be with these other Christians. He was longing to be in a relationship with them. He wanted to hear what God was doing in their lives. He wanted to see what God was doing in their lives. What do you think would happen to the local church if our love for one another looked more like the airport than just bumping in each other at Walmart? You know? We're bumping each other at Walmart. It's like, hey, how you doing? You're good? You're doing all right? You're feeling okay? Good? And you, we're really just trying to get a good our hot dogs, you know? It's like we're, we're moving along. But, but what if our relationships in the church were, were such that it, it felt a little bit more like the airport, that we, we were longing to see each other, to encourage each other, to, to stir one another, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds? Paul had a longing to see these other believers. And Why? Why did he long to see them? Why did he have such a love for them? Listen to what he says next. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Paul longed to see them because he felt like they were his joy and his crown. And at first glance, that sounds a little off, right? I mean, it almost sounds like that Paul's saying that they were more important than Jesus. Because isn't, isn't Jesus supposed to be our joy and our crown? Is Paul saying, well, those people in Philippi, they're a lot more important to me than Jesus. No, that's not what he's saying at all. This is what Jesus said. John chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Fullness of joy, real joy, lasting joy, can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life can only be received from Christ. So if fullness of joy can only come from Christ and, and the crown of life can only come from life, then what is from Christ? What is Paul saying that these people were his joy and his crown? Well, what happens after an Olympic event is finished? Well, they hand out the medals, right? Gold and silver and bronze. Well, back in the day, it wasn't medals. It was these wreaths, and they would sit them on their head, and so it would be like a, a little bit of a crown. So, so that wreath was a mark of the victory for that athlete. Paul is saying here that, that these people over in this church in Philippi, these people that were like me and you, they, they were over in this church. Paul says, those people, they're my crown. They're my joy. They're my victory. Paul considered that these people and their salvation and their love and obedience to Jesus, that's how he defined victory. He longed to see them because they were surrendered to Jesus Christ. He longed to be with them because they were surrendered to Jesus Christ. He found joy in those people because they were surrendered to Jesus Christ. And he considered his life a victory because those people were surrendered to Jesus Christ. Sir, is there anything tangible in that for you and for me? Well, how do you define victory? When you think about the word victory in life, how do you define victory in your life? If your definition of victory is only associated with your favorite sports team, then that is a sad, shallow, 
ultimately and eternally useless definition of victory. How do you really define what it means to win? How do you really define what it means to succeed? Sinclair Ferguson, for a number of years, was the pastor at First Presbyterian Church over in Columbia. He said this, the only enduring appetite is an appetite of love for Christ and his people. All else will become dust. All else will become dust. So, if you're a professing Christian, how's your appetite? Do you have an appetite for Christ? Do you, do you have an appetite of love for Jesus and, and love for His people? Do you have an appetite of love for Jesus, for love for His people, and love for the lost people that He came to save? People who may not be like you, they may not be in the same neighborhood, the same country, or anything like you. Do you have a love for Jesus? Do you have a love for Jesus' people, and do you have a love for the lost people that Jesus came to save? There's an old saying that goes like this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Paul's victory was found in what was done for Christ. His victory, he looked at his life and said, my life has been victorious because there are these people that I told about Jesus, and they surrendered to Jesus, and they're following Jesus. Can I just encourage you that if you're in a season of life where you feel like you're losing and you're failing, then I have an amazing path of victory for you. Start making a big deal out of Jesus. Paul looked at his life. He's in prison at the time. And he said, you know what? My life is victorious because these people heard the gospel and they got saved. So, question. Do you have any joys and crowns in your life? Is there anyone in your life that you are right now sharing Christ with? Is there anybody in your life that you're serving in Christ, that you're discipling in Christ, that you're encouraging in Christ? Christians are, are called to have joys and crowns. So, so don't be lazy and don't be disobedient and don't rob yourself. Don't rob yourself of the thrill of what it means to invest Christ in the lives of other people, whatever that may look like for you. May God help us to pursue our joys and our crowns. Now Paul's going to give us the other side of that, therefore. Because Jesus has, has purchased our eternity, because he's guaranteed with his own body and his own blood that what our souls long for the most will be satisfied in him forever, and because he has given victory not just to us, but to believers all over the world. Therefore, what? Well, Paul tells us, last part of verse 1. And this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Therefore, because you're a citizen of heaven. Therefore, because you have victory in Christ, stand firm in the Lord. Don't fall apart. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Keep an attitude for Christ. Keep an appetite for Christ. Stand firm in the Lord. 
John MacArthur says this, it is imperative, a command with almost a, a military ring to it. Like soldiers in the front line, believers are commanded to hold their position while under attack. Stand firm and, and hold your position. Now, someone might be saying, well, I don't get it. Well, why do I have to stand firm? I mean, why is Paul telling me to do this? I mean, look, I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I, I pray. I, I come to church. I bring the kids to church. I bring the grandkids to church. Man, I even filled out my budget request form, man. I, I'm doing it, you know. I, I pulled my car all the way into the new parking space this week. Man, I, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So why this military language? Why, why do I have to stand firm? When I was in college, uh, my freshman year, there was a guy from my hometown uh, named Bobby Harbuck. Bobby was a senior. And a few weeks into the semester, I was talking to Bobby, and he said, well, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, how are your classes going? How are you getting along? And I said, oh, man, I'm doing great. I mean, I'm, I'm fantastic, man. I'm, I'm ahead on my reading. I'm ahead on my homework. Man, I'm, I'm doing super. And Bobby just nicely looked at me, and he said, Dow, he said, listen to me closely. You are never ahead. It didn't take me long to figure out he was right. (laughs) Never ahead. Listen, if you're a believer, we are never ahead. If we're going to stand firm in the Lord, we have to always be thinking about standing firm in the Lord. We can't stand firm until we're thinking firm. And then as we're thinking, we have to start thinking out loud. We have to start thinking with our hands. We have to start thinking with our lives. The ways of the world will choke our appetite for Christ in the blink of an eye. Lig Duncan says this, Friend, all that you have to do for worldliness to happen is nothing. You don't have to go out and court worldliness. It's looking for you. It knows where you live. It knows your street address. It knows your email, knows your cell phone, knows your heart. And unless you are resolved not to buy into the lie that's all around you, you'll be sucked in. Now, we're not ahead. We, we have to be thinking and standing firm all the time. We have to be holding our position all the time. He goes on to point us to Genesis and says this, you know, it's just like the garden, isn't it? The serpent comes to the woman and says, this piece of fruit, it'll make you happy. It'll do the trick. God won't do the trick. This piece of fruit, it will do the trick. And worldliness does the same thing. God won't make you happy, but this, oh, oh, it'll make you happy. And then he says this, and what happens? Does it make you happy? No, it brings you nothing but misery. And it causes your heart to grow dead to the only joy that has ever existed and the only joy that will last. Don't miss that last part. A love for Jesus and the love of Jesus is the only joy that will last. The only one that will last. And that's why Paul's writing his friends from his incarceration and he's saying, guys, stand Firm in the Lord. Hold your position because the world will try to get you to stand for lots of things and fall for lots of things, even some really good things. But you stand firm in the Lord. You keep thinking firm in the Lord. So how do you do that? How do you stand firm? Well, this is what Jesus said. John 15 verse 4. Abide in me 
and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you can unless you abide in me. Here's the interesting thing about this scene here. Judas has already bugged out. He's already left to go and betray Jesus. And so it's just the 11 now. And so the 11 were not just followers. They were true disciples. And how do we know that? Because they're still there. They stayed. They remained. They were still with Jesus. They were truly in Christ. They were abiding in Christ. What does it mean to abide in something? It means to stay. It means to remain. It means to to be present. Now, I can't stay somewhere and I can't remain somewhere. I can't be present somewhere unless I've already got there, right? I mean, I can't stay in a hotel room until I've checked in, right? Well, legally and ethically, I can't stay in a hotel room until I've already checked in. So so the question here is, have you checked in? See, the The beauty of the gospel is it calls us to action. The Bible tells us that God is the great creator and king and ruler of the universe. And sin separates us from him. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That means the only just and right payment and penalty for sin is death and separation from God forever. That's how the scripture reads. So put that a little more practically, would you ever take a convicted, non-conformed, non-reformed serial criminal and invite them to stay in your house forever? Probably not. So why would God invite a convicted, non-conformed, non-reformed serial sinner who hates him, hates his ways, hates his son, keeps rejecting his son and rejecting his ways to come live in his house. Well, he wouldn't. But but here's the great news. The great news is there's this shift in the story. You see, in dying on the cross and coming back from the dead, Jesus can change the story. Jesus has made a way for you to be right with God. He's made a way for you to no longer be separated from God. He's made a way to pay for the penalty of sin. He's made a way for you to check in. So the question is, have you checked in? Have you repented and devoted your life to Jesus? Because you can't abide until you do. So if you haven't, then we plead with you, today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Repent and turn to him. If you have devoted your life to Christ, then Jesus has one word to give you today. It's amazingly simple. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus just says, you know what? Abide. Stay with me. Keep keep pedaling. Just just stay with me. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. So how do you know if you're abiding? How do you know if you are standing firm in the Lord? This is what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I love the simplicity of this. Paul says, look, I know him. I know Jesus. I don't just know about him. I actually know him. I've been a Christian for 35 years. 
When I became a Christian, I didn't completely understand what it meant that Jesus was in my heart. But I know now. There's a song a number of years ago by a group called For Him, and the lyrics of the chorus go like this. I heard no heavenly choir, no angels in white attire. I got no amazing, superhuman, omnipresent power, but I know you now. I know you're in my heart. I know you now beyond the shadow of a doubt. I know you now. I'm standing firm now. I completely understand that I know Jesus now. I may not have understood all of it at that moment, but I know now. Friend, if you're a Christian, don't ask us to go find your card in the office. If you're a Christian, don't just look at the date that you might have written in your Bible, although that's amazing. That's the beginning of your story. If you're a Christian right now, say, yeah, I know Jesus now. He's in my heart now. I'm following him now, not perfectly. I'm dropping the ball a lot, but but there is no shadow of a doubt that I know Jesus now. That's how you abide. That's how you stand firm. It's It's not a a magical prayer. It's it's not a a magical outline. It's not seven steps or 12 steps. It's just the one step. It's just abiding in him, standing firm in him, staying with him, remaining in him. Paul tells us to stand firm in the Lord, to hold the position that Jesus established for you when he saved you. I want to give just two pictures of this in, in real life. We are this week uh, in the process of, of possibly preparing for a hurricane coming this way. So how are you preparing? Are you preparing with trust and, and wisdom? Or are you preparing with the kind of fear that seems to say to your husband and your wife and your kids and your grandkids and your neighbors and the people you work and go to school with that there are no promises of God to stand on. How do we prepare? See, opportunities are coming, even if they're bad opportunities. How, how are we preparing right now for those opportunities? What are we doing now? Glenn Scrivener has an interesting picture of this. He writes, think of the sports fan covered in his team's merchandise walking up to the stadium. He is grinning from ear to ear and sharing with anyone who will hear the unsearchable riches of his team. How does he do it? In his heart, he has honored his team as holy. He was prepared long before he got to the stadium. His heart was set on his team. And he gives this illustration, which truthfully, this is going to be really funny to some of us and the rest of you. Don't worry about it, and it's not important. Think of the office colleague holding forth on their unpopular opinion. Star Wars is terrible, they say. Comic Sans is highly underrated. Nickelback is actually a terrific band. They have set apart a conviction in their heart, and it overflows into words. See, both of those examples are examples of people who were thinking with their hands, 
They were talking with their hands. They were living with their hands. What they were thinking about, they were convinced about. They were standing firm in their beliefs. We have to think. We have to talk. We have to live with our hands. We, we have to stand firm. The source of our thinking when we are preparing for anything has to be clear. And and what is that source? Scrivener goes on to say this. Return to the source, the glory of Christ, a treasure greater than all the sports teams, all the celebrity gossip, all the pet peeves, all the hobby horses that fill our conversations, including even preparing for a hurricane. The glory of Christ is greater than everything and anything all the time, always. We keep returning to the source. That's how we prepare. Here's the second picture. When Mary Tudor took over as the Queen of England in 1553, her main objective was to make the entire nation a Roman Catholic nation. And she set about doing that by killing more than 300 Christians who refused to cooperate with her new plan. One of those Christians was Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer had been the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England for 20 years. On March 21st, 1556, he was supposed to stand outside and, and publicly recant his faith and tell everyone that he was cooperating with the new Roman Catholic religion taking over the country. But when he got up to make his public statement, there was a bit of a twist. See, He was supposed to make the statement, but then he was going to be executed anyway. The queen was not nice. That's why they usually didn't call her Queen Mary. She was more often known by her nickname, Bloody Mary. And this is the picture of what happens in that moment when Cranmer stands up to give his public announcement. One historian, Michael Rustin, puts it this way. On the appointed day, Cranmer was brought to the platform to speak to the assembled crowd. He confirmed his faith in God and in the Bible. Then, to the horror of the church dignitaries, he said, As for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. Amid an uproar, Cranmer was pulled off the platform, but he broke away and ran straight to the stake and stood resolutely to be burned. He was thinking with his hands. He was talking with his hands. He was running with his faith. Why? Why? Because in that moment, there was only one thing that remained for him. The great love of Christ. And because of the great love of Christ, therefore he ran back to his spot because he knew the greatest thing he could do with his life was to stand firm in the Lord. Friend, may God give us the strength to stand firm in the Lord.